1: Hey Rockheads, take a break from trying to warp space in your basement and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 287 with guest Sue Mosher, recorded live Tuesday, October 16, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and now bringing world-class expert-led training in C Sharp, ASP.NET, VB.NET, SharePoint, BizTalk, Team System, and Workflow Foundation on-site to your development team. Details online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, providing the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls, with first class customer service online at www.telerik.com and by data dynamics makers of active reports.net simple powerful and cost effective reporting for windows forms and asp.net web applications online at www.datadynamics.com support is also provided by code magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who says computers don't get nervous, just a little antsy, Carl Franklin.
2: Hey,
1: this is Carl Franklin and
2: Richard Campbell. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Hi, Richard. Hey, man. Recording from my hotel room at Dev Connections at the Mandalay Bay Hotel in Las Vegas. Oh, boy, aren't we having fun? Uh, You know, I can't complain. First trip to Vegas this year, and uh, Mandalay Bay is always a great place to go. It is a cool place. Richard and I are here early um, because we've spent two days uh, at a Developer Express Technical Summit. And Developer Express, one of our sponsors here, basically wanted to show a bunch of influencers their new stuff. Yeah, and what a great experience! Actually,
0: phenomenal products those guys are working on. It was really neat to see the WPF and Silverlight stuff coming
2: along so well. Of course, you know we got to see Mark Miller do some great demos. And, <laughs> you know, what was so funny is that he was he was showing this feature in Code Rush, and I can't remember if it was Rick Strahl or somebody who you know who's been using it for a long time. So, you know, I've been I've been using Code Rush for years. And I've never seen that feature before. That's why I love coming to these things. Well, yeah. And and Miguel Castro was sitting right beside me. He said pretty much the same thing. He's like, I could never figure out why that was working the way it is. Now I finally understand it. Right. Well, Richard, let's get right into our Better Know a Framework for the show.
3: Excellent.
2: All righty. What do you got for me? Well, of course, you know, what's great about Better Know a Framework is the conversations that it spawns by email and, and that we, you know, then... Bring to the show. I don't know if I need to hear another email on how somebody says GUID though. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not that important. But um, you know, somebody did suggest something that I had totally overlooked, which is I uh, disposable. Oh yeah, of course. Now, early on in .NET Rocks history, Chris Sells enlightened us with I think it was the very first show that he did. Yeah. Uh, he enlightened us on the importance of disposing objects and what I. I didn't even think we had an IDisposable back then, but it was the great description exactly of how garbage collection works. Yeah, exactly. So here's without getting into—I mean, I do entire sessions on this at uh, at you know uh, conferences. So I'm not going to get into this. We had a huge whole show on it, like I said. But IDisposable is an interface that you should implement in any components that or or classes where you are going to keep module-level or class-level variables that are non-managed. You're going to keep references to non-managed code uh, objects. So that means com objects. That means handles, if you're using pInvoke for the Windows API. Anything that is not managed code. Right. And you're going to... Here's a classic situation, is that you have a, a com object that uh opens a connection let's say a database connection and it's a com object it's not a database connection yeah, you're not using ado.net maybe it's a com object that has its own connections open and it has its own close method that you're supposed to call when you're done with it right, right? well back in the non.net days we had these in well in vb.net anyway we had the these uh sort of these con- the initialize and uh and I can't even remember what the destructor was called, but basically there were events that happened uh, when the reference count for that com object went to zero. That yeah, means when we were setting else, things to nothing. Yeah, nothing else was touching it. You set it to nothing, boom, it gets destroyed. You know, the memory gets cleaned up right away. Right. Um, that's not how it happens in .NET. So when you set a com object, uh, which is really a proxy to a, a managed, an unmanaged com object that exists in the com world, when you set that to nothing, it doesn't really destroy the com object. It just destroys your reference to it. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff involved here, but basically what it comes down to is that you should implement idisposable to give the, the caller of your object a dispose method that they should call before your object goes out of scope in their code. In other words, right before they're going to uh, not have any more references to it, that's where they should call dispose. And the fact that it does have a dispose method is a signal to the developer that they need to call it before it goes out of scope.
0: It's all about just being tidy with your code.
2: Yeah, and it, it, what it comes down to is good memory management and allowing the garbage collector to do its job. So I would encourage anyone who doesn't understand iDisposable, it's such a fundamental, fundamental thing for .NET developers, go back and listen to the Chris Sells show, the very first one he did, I don't have the show number offhand, but it was the first one he did. Um, or just, you know, Google iDisposable, you'll find some good stuff out there. And that's Better No Framework for today. Cool.
0: Well, that's classic stuff, man. I, I I'm, It's fun to think about that because it's
2: been around for so many years. Yeah, it's been a while. Well, uh, we don't really have any emails, do we? No, no. Uh, you know, fun p- fun parts about being at a conference
0: is uh, it's just not the same email loop as it normally is. Right. But, uh, I, you know, it's exciting to be here. We're going to have a busy week, yeah, lots of uh, interviews and things
2: to do. Yep. And speaking of interviews, let's just uh, roll the interview for this show, shall we? Okay, Richard, Sue Mosher is our guest today. She is the acclaimed author of books and articles on Microsoft Outlook and Exchange and founder of the award-winning Slipstick Systems Outlook and Exchange Solutions Center website at www.slipstick.com. Her company, TurtleFlock LLC, is dedicated to helping individuals and organizations get the most out of their desktop programs. Much of Sue's work has been involved researching Outlook and Exchange issues and presenting them in books and articles on her websites, including OutlookCode.com for Outlook developers, and in private seminars and projects for clients. She's also developed custom solutions with Outlook and other Microsoft Office programs. She is currently an MVP for Outlook, but... She said just before we introduced her here that uh, she's been an MVP for 13 years, 14 years on Windows for Work groups. Well, 13 years ago, Outlook didn't exist. Well, is that right, Sue? Uh,
4: absolutely. 13 years ago, uh, we were working with a product that some people may remember called Exchange Client.
0: All right.
4: That came in Windows 95. Uh, and so in... I'm trying to in forget. In 1994, Windows for Workgroups was the one way that you could do peer-to-peer networking on Microsoft-only products. Right. And I had written some instructions for some clients of the company that I was working for at that time on how to set up their Microsoft mail, which came with Windows for Workgroups.
0: Net buoy, right? Oh man, yeah. Yes.
4: Net buoy.
0: Net buoy. <laughs> well, and it, that was a time where you paid for networking. That networking was an an extra product, right? It was Novell or, or Arcnet or one of those things.
4: And that's why Windows for Workgroups was very cool for some of the companies that we were working with, who had five or six people, uh, no net, no computer technology experts in house. To ask them to install Novell Netware was insane.
2: Right. And so yeah. we
4: would show them how to set up everything they needed just on Windows for Workgroup.
2: And I remember before Windows for Workgroups, we had uh, Windows three one one, and uh, Trumpet Winsock. Yeah. Ick. And before that, floppy disks.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Sneaker net.
2: There you Sneaker go. Sneaker net.
4: <laughs> so how many people listening to this... Know why floppy disks were called floppy?
2: Yeah, well, that's. Uh, when was
4: the last time you saw one?
2: Uh, an actual floppy, because the three and a halfs weren't floppy anymore. So, they, right, but they still call them floppy. But the five and a quarters, and even before that, there was something like seven inch floppy disk. Eight disc, inch, yeah, eight the inch? eight inch floppies were really floppy. Yeah, that's what. That's why, right, Sue? Exactly,
4: because they yeah, were actually the, the little three and a half. Pocket-sized disks weren't very floppy at all.
2: This is cool. This is like a stroll down memory lane for me. Oh, no.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: I just realized... You know the funny part is email's still painful. I mean, it was painful in the, in the mid-'90s, trying to get Microsoft Mail working and all that stuff. But I feel like email's still painful.
4: Well, it's the the pain points have moved. Yeah. Email was always a way to solve some problems. The, the problem that it solved for me, because I was working at a global company when I started using email, uh, was that it allowed asynchronous communications. I could not pick up the phone and call Hong Kong, but I could send an email message and get my problem taken care of easily overnight. Right. You, and not have to worry about what time zone is it on the other side of the world.
0: Well, and I'm amazed how much we take for granted now that I can fire you an email and you'll literally have it in a few seconds.
4: That, frankly, is what always amazes me that I will go to a website that uh, where it requires some registration and it requires some confirmation and it will say, uh, now wait for your email client to give you the confirmation message. And I go to Outlook and there it is.
0: Yeah, it just works.
4: It just it just works, except of course when it doesn't work. Right, and then we it's like ha- having the electricity go out in your house or having the water go out. Boy, you it sure wonder, is. How can I live without this for a yes. few hours?
2: How will I survive? People feel it's an entitlement. I think you know to have internet access to have email. You have to, well,
4: and it's not just an entitlement from a technical standpoint. For a lot of people, it's an entitlement uh, in the sense that. If they send you an email message, they expect a response, and they oh, yeah. expect a response within a particular amount of time, even though there is no consensus whatsoever on what that amount of time might be. If you ask on the street you know, 50 or 100 people, they'd all come up with a different answer.
2: Every once in a while, you know, I'll send an email to somebody at Microsoft, and I won't hear from them for, you know, months. And then I'll get an email, you know, sorry, I was just t- completely swamped with email trying to slog through my inbox after months, you know. And it al- I often wonder how, how long before you give up on expecting an answer, you know, how, how, how often do you just go through your inbox that gets piled up and piled up and piled up and just delete everything? You know, if anyone th- these emails are so old that if anyone really wants to get in touch with me, they'll send me another one.
4: It's nice to keep it around just to know when that person contacted you, in case they do send you another one, and then you go back to your inbox and say, "Hmm, that one did come in five months ago." Maybe <laughs> well, I should I've,
2: I've found that you know when I'm when I archive everything, which is what I do, I archive it, and then uh, you know if if I'm using Outlook, it's going to be. MSN search to find it because that's going to be really fast. And if I'm using Google, it's Google desktop or if uh, whatever. But, you know, some sort of indexed search, I think, today is critical to to any email. Without that, you have to keep things in folders and stuff so that you can find them easily. But once you have that really fast indexed search, and I'm not talking about Outlook search, of course. You know what I'm talking about.
4: (laughs) Well, Outlook search today is... Windows Live Search, right? That is what that is Outlook. Search.
2: But the earlier versions Using of Outlook, exactly I guess, exactly the same
4: search as uh, in, as you have on MSN. It's just doing it locally.
2: But even and I'm going to say, way back in the day of Outlook 2003, <laughs> <laughs> you know, searching was painful, but we didn't really use it like we do now. You know, well, it, it, it was
4: it wasn't the same kind of no, was indexing. Uh, indexing. The right. indexing technology has really. Um, paid off from Microsoft's investments.
2: Yep. I agree. So now I don't keep any folders, you know? I
4: have a few folders mostly because I they are related to such long-term projects that I'm really in the habit of organizing a few things in folders. But most of the time, I'm like you. I just let it sit in my inbox till I'm ready to do something with it. I categorize. I use categories a lot. Yeah. And I use search a lot.
2: It's like leftovers in the fridge. You you, know, you put the leftovers in there until they get nice and rotten and then you throw them away.
4: <laughs> How did you know I cleaned out my fridge this <laughs> week? Uh I'm
0: I'm more of a get things done guy. I have lots of folders around my inbox. And lots of rules so that client stuff goes in one folder and Microsoft RD stuff goes in another folder and .NET Rock stuff goes in another folder and so on.
2: But is it there for storage or do you actually go back through your folders and read things?
0: Well, that's the inbox folder collection. So then they're organized by, you know, stuff I have to work on, stuff needs to wait and and so forth. uh, Hanselman does this too. Right. he's He's a getting things done guy.
2: I found that once things go in a folder, I rarely go look for them. I rarely go read them. I don't know why. It's the psychological thing, maybe.
4: That's what I like about Outlook 2007 is that you can use all those different ways. You can categorize. You can search. You can put things in folders. You can mark things for the to-do list. That's what I usually do uh, for things from clients and people that I'm interacting with often. Instead of putting them in folders and then go looking at those folders, I'm looking at it and saying, hmm, do I need to do something with this? Marking it for my to-do list, and then then I can just ignore my to-do list instead of ignoring my (laughs) folders.
0: Yes, I'm carefully organized in my procrastination.
4: Exactly. I think it's very important to manage your procrastination. Actually, seriously, you have a choice between managing it or letting it manage you.
0: Right. Yeah.
4: And it's I think part of the pain that people feel around email is that compulsion to do something with every message. And at the end of the day, they find they've done nothing but email. Yes. Yeah. And right. have forgotten what it was they were really supposed to be there to do. So having a to-do list actually is helpful. There are especially if you can just set aside maybe an hour a day to go through the email and deal with that and then review the to-do list and rejigger the priorities so that they fit what you're actually supposed to be doing.
2: Now, I know your your husband's a philosopher, but, you know, maybe you guys have had these philosophical discussions about what uh, what the psychological effects might be of, you know measuring your day's happiness by the number of emails that you get and just that whole getting into the zone of you know staring at the inbox waiting for new stuff to come in you know which is i don't think too well healthy, and i've just had
0: an example of this because my wife who's just wrapped up a major project and so it's essentially at loose ends goes and checks her mailbox monday morning no new email and makes me make sure the server's working properly She just used to, and I'm certainly, I mean, and I'm saying, yeah, I have 40 new
2: emails overnight, so I think the mail server's working. I think nobody wants to talk to you. But it's weird. I think there was actually some studies done, Sue, maybe you know about this, about people who constantly check their email, you know, whether it's on a BlackBerry or a pocket PC phone or a regular cell phone, um, that it makes you stupid.
4: (laughs) The whole issue of attention is one that i Personally find really interesting that it whatever is. you're focusing on, that's where, you know, all of the, the resources that you have are going to be channeled into that. So right. if you want your life to revolve around email, all right, focus on your email. But if you want your life to revolve around something else, you've got to look somewhere than the inbox.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but every machine I go to, everybody's got Outlook open. It's the one program everybody's always running.
4: I love to watch that on airplanes. I love to you know, walk up and down the aisle and look over people's shoulders and see which version of Outlook they have. <laughs> right. See how they're using it, how they've got the screen organized.
0: Yeah, and it and it, and it varies a lot, and you can't stare for too long because people notice. <laughs>
4: <laughs> sorry, I was. I used to be a news reporter, so I perfected the fine art of being able to read upside down papers on people's desks. Right, the computer screens as you pass by is no problem at all.
2: <laughs> That's right. You you worked with the Associated Press, didn't you?
4: Yes. That is actually where I got my first computer experience, uh, starting in 1979.
2: Oh, I'm so old. I'm so young.
4: And the machines we were using then were so sensitive, you could not wear a sweater to the office.
2: For static, huh? For static. Yeah.
4: If you did, you would likely lose portions of your work throughout your shift.
0: And what sort of... Do you remember what sort of machinery you were using then? Was it like Wang word processors, that kind of stuff?
4: Um It was all custom stuff. Uh, the Uh The machines that were particularly sensitive were those that we were using to generate very simple text displays for cable television systems.
0: Oh, right. Hmm. The sort of scrollers.
4: Yes. Ever try to write a news story in 20, you know, 20, 30 character lines?
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's all you get.
0: Right? Yeah, it, it was
4: not out. a lot of fun.
2: So let's talk programming Outlook. And the first question is, does Outlook need programming?
4: You already answered that question. Do you realize that? You said Outlook is the one program that everyone has open.
2: Right. But are they that's are where, they saying I wish it had this feature that it doesn't have?
4: Well, we can we could talk about that, but that's where a lot of companies want to put their line of business application. They want it to live in Outlook because Outlook is where they know their salespeople or their customer service reps or whoever they are is going to ha- be looking at. So Outlook as a platform, as a programming platform, uh, has made a huge amount of progress. It really wasn't that viable uh unless you were in an exchange public folder frame of mind
3: Absolutely. until
4: Outlook 2000 but starting in Outlook 2000 we've had the ability to create add-ins that live inside Outlook and that add-in experience both for the user and the developer just keeps getting better and better uh where it's really turned the corner is the last few years because Microsoft now has internal clients uh Business Customer Manager, the Standalone Contact Management Program, and then Microsoft CRM, the Enterprise Customer Management Program, both are internal add-in clients. So those groups come to the Outlook Development Team and the Visual Studio Tools for Office Team and say, we need X, Y, and Z capabilities to make our Microsoft add-ins work. That's really helped push Outlook extensibility and Visto, uh, extensibility along much, at a much faster pace.
0: And I find it interesting that it's Outlook centric. I mean, I remember in 2000 when we were talking about Exchange and Outlook as the notes killer, that we were going to have this great development platform between the server and the client. To uh, to do all this stuff, and it just looks like it never came to fruition.
4: It really didn't, and um, I'm not quite sure why that is right now. In terms of the outlook as client, what is on the back end, um, we're really in in a in an odd in between place. Microsoft wants public folders to go away. On Exchange server. They really, really want them to go away. They don't install by default in Exchange 2007. Whether they will be in the next version of Exchange is still kind of an open question.
2: What's the alternative?
4: Well, the alternative is SharePoint. Right. Um, and course. SharePoint has a lot going for it. But today, with you know Office 2007 SharePoint server and Outlook 2007. There is not parity with what you can do with an Exchange public folder.
0: There still features in public folders that that SharePoint can't do.
4: Yeah, there are a lot of things that they can't that cannot be done with that Outlook plus SharePoint combination that you can do with an Outlook Exchange combination. So how long do we have to wait? One version of Outlook, two versions. That's why we're kind of in an in a, an in between place where. There's not a really clear sense of, of where this is all going to wind up.
0: Well, it still seems to me that Outlook without Exchange is a second-class citizen.
2: Now, why do you say that, Richard? Well, just
0: it's n- a male client. Every, every time I talk to someone who's complaining about Outlook, and I put you in this group, Carl, you don't have an Exchange server. My experience with Outlook with an Exchange server seems to be so much better.
2: Than the people living without Exchange. So does that that sort of implies that Microsoft took features out of Outlook and only put them in there if you have an Exchange server?
4: No, I think it's it's that there are features in Outlook that require a consistent backend, right? That you get from Exchange. Uh, things like uh, um, you know. Task requests, in particular, don't really make sense unless you're in a corporate environment, or at least not for most people. You can make them work over the Internet, but they don't. It requires someone on the other end to have Outlook. Uh, it's, there are no features, really, that aren't, aren't server-dependent that need that Outlook plus Exchange combination. And many of those can be accomplished with other servers, like a calendaring server.
2: Yeah, I think that's the big feature that that's missing without Exchange. Is some. And there sort are of... other
4: calendaring servers that work with Outlook. Hmm. They're using iCalendar. Yeah. Especially now that we've got in Outlook 2007 the ability to use uh, WebCal, that that opens up a lot of calendaring applications that were hard to get to before. The one thing that no one has, I think, built like Exchange built it is the whole meeting room and other resource booking mechanism. Right. That's actually very complicated. Uh, and I don't know if you've taken a look at what they've done in Exchange 2007. Um, they've really listened and expanded a lot of the functionality there. Um, the features that companies want for that kind of booking are quite complex to build uh, in in the sense that you want to know uh, custom information about each room. Does it have a coffee maker? Does it have a sink? Uh, people want to build that kind of thing into it, and which you can do in Exchange 2007 but they there have not been third party calendaring servers with that kind of richness on the back end. At least not that I've had on. And, my I, and right I don't now.
0: think that that there's any intent by Microsoft to to cripple Outlook without Exchange. But I do think that the stability of having a known back end means that certain features are going to work better. And more than anything, and to your point, Sue, about uh, the internal development, Microsoft themselves runs. Run Outlook with Exchange.
2: That's the part of their product that's best tested. Well, they also assume that every partner has a CorpNet account.
4: <laughs> yeah, I, I really wish that there was a group in Microsoft that was dedicated to running POP and IMAP over dial-up phone lines.
0: Oh, yeah. Mm. Hmm. I think
4: that, that Outlook would be such a much better product for the non-exchange non corporate user yeah. if... There were people in Microsoft feeling the pain of those kinds of connections every day.
2: And we're getting laughed out of the boardroom when they suggest that we have to optimize for dial-up. <laughs> <laughs> See, you're laughing now too, right?
4: Yeah, yeah. It's it's one of those la- you know laugh so you don't cry kind right. of things.
2: I have <laughs> I have two words for you, Sue. Time zones.
4: Oh, oh yes, the time zone problem. You know they're they're. I think there that's one place where notes did it better. Yeah. Because they have uh and iCalendar actually does it better. The iCalendar interface for uh internet exchange of calendar information.
2: I just wanna know what's has, so hard.
4: It has hard time zones and that's something that just isn't designed into Outlook, it's not designed into exchange. Why?
2: I it mean, comes why up is this,
4: every beta cycle.
2: Why is this so hard?
4: Um, I think because at this point it would break so much um, to do it it's that al- way. It's
2: already broken.
4: No, But there are a lot of scenarios where you do need those kinds of time zones. If I am that Outlook supports, if I'm setting up a meeting in London and I want people in New York to attend it, I need the time zone for that meeting to be correct in at each attendees on each attendee screen
2: let me give you a scenario that's broken and that could easily be fixed so I'm I know that I'm traveling to do a conference and I want to schedule my talk for 11 a.m. because at local time right so when I go in and I say my location is in Sofia Bulgaria and my time is in 11 a.m. now why couldn't it ask me, you know, what time zone this is going to be in so that when I go there, I get a reminder at the right time?
4: Uh, actually, um, Outlook 2007 does that. It does. Yeah, it has an, it, an extra time zones command that will allow you to uh, set the time zone for a particular event.
0: Right, yeah, there's a time zone. I'm just looking at it. There's a time zone button. Yeah. You press the time zone button, and you can set the start and end time for in a particular time zone.
4: Right. It's kind of weird in that it's you don't expect it to be there. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it takes a little bit of getting used to, but for somebody who really needs that kind of capability, that should work. And yeah. I like the fact that you could set it different. Time zone. So if you're getting on a plane in Los Angeles and you're flying to Boston, you can have a different start time for your, the beginning of your flight uh, and end your flight at a different time zone.
2: Right. Here's another issue. Um, but, wouldn't but it, it be nicer? Work for all,
4: all day events are still. Yeah, open.
2: all day events are the ones that buy All okay. day events
4: are the place that needs some attention.
2: My cell phone knows what time zone I'm in, pretty much, because it's got some sort of GPS thing but but my laptop doesn't. <laughs> and a laptop's a more powerful
0: computer. But uh, I've learned to never change the time zone on my laptop.
4: I'll I'm change it on you my phone, on that
0: one. but I'll never change it on my laptop. But shouldn't,
2: it's just catastrophic when you do. But shouldn't the laptop just know where it is now? I mean, the phones can do it.
4: That I think Windows should have an alternate time zone display, just like Outlook can display two time zones. Windows should do that, too. Right. So what feature was it, Richard, that you don't have in Outlook that you want? Is it the time zone thing, or did you have something else in mind? I think it was the
2: shared calendars that he was really –
0: Yeah, we're still – we're still bad. You know, one of the challenges of doing .NET Rocks is scheduling the guest with both of us all in different time zones. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, trying to get that right consistently with uh, iCalendar is just not that easy. Uh, and, you know, figuring out what, what you really want is that functionality with exchange. The, the power of exchange when it comes to calendaring is not booking the meeting, it's knowing when people are busy. You know, that's yeah. the magic. And you got into that with the whole, uh, you know, consuming a resource like a meeting room that you're able to see who, who's in that room, who's not in that room, who's available when, and so on. And trying to get that working over the internet, I think is voodoo, really.
4: Have you uh, played around with the new feature in Outlook 2007 that lets you send your free, busy time to someone in an email message.
2: That's interesting.
0: Yeah, you know, I keep hearing that 2007 has all these additional capabilities, but every time you try to use them, you end up needing to set up an account somewhere in Office Live.
4: No, this is this has nothing to do with Office Live. Uh, there's actually a command right there on the calendar navigation pane that says, send a calendar via email. And when that comes up, it gives you some choices. You can send a calendar that has all of the details of your events, uh, which is great for, say, a you know boss to send to a subordinate. You know, here's my travel itinerary. Right. Uh, but you can also just send your free busy time. And what it sends is uh, two things. It puts. It makes it really. Um, nice looking html message that's color coded uh for instance i just did one for what is uh for my schedule for today and it lists that uh from 8am uh, to 12pm i was free from 12pm to 1:30pm i'm busy cuz i'm talking to you <laughs> uh from 1:30 to 5 i'm free and the rest of the day is outside working hours plus hmm. it's made an i calendar attachment, so that if I send this to someone who has an iCalendar application, they can use that attachment, and it will create a calendar for me, uh, a separate calendar, and you would just see one appointment on it for when I'm busy. Hmm. So you could use that to know exactly what my schedule was. And pick a time anywhere in the middle. No, no server required.
2: That's interesting, Sue. I recently changed my email from, uh, I, I'd been running my own mail server at Franklin's net, my domain for years, probably since about 1996. And, uh, I've been using a third party, you know, SMTP pop three server. M. Damon from Alten Technologies, and uh, a lot of people ask me why I never used Exchange, and I just I got scared away from Exchange, especially because it really didn't start out as an SMTP POP3 server that was sort of added on. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that I don't need, like Active Directory and all that stuff, to just run a simple mail server. So... So I had run this for the longest time and then of course things just got bigger and the, the whole calendar thing. They had a web client, but it really wasn't all that good for me. You know, it didn't do some really important things. So in time zones in particular was a particular problem with that as well. So I moved to Google apps for domains. But before I did that, I tried the, uh, the live mail because there's also a Windows live mail domains where you can actually move your domain to live. Right. And it just didn't have the features. There were some features missing that uh, I just couldn't live without. So um, apparently, you know, they're still, they're behind a little bit, but they'll play catch up and when they do, you know, who knows, I might move back to it.
4: Well, I would suggest you try this email to email um, capability in Outlook that doesn't doesn't need any server. Um, It just uses iCalendar attachments to share the information.
3: I do the course, same thing Outlook with Google. 2007
4: can also pick up an iCalendar, an, I an ICS file from a website. Um, yep. It can pick it up from SharePoint.
2: I do the same with Google Calendar. So Richard sends his calendar entries to me, and they go right into Google Calendar.
3: Yeah, it's very similar.
2: It's So the, the what I'm saying is Exchange Outlook and Google Calendar really, in Google Mail, really work well together. It appears I, anyway. We haven't had any major issues, have we, Richard?
0: No. I think the ICS format is what's saving our bacon. Yep. And all that seems to work.
4: Where I'm disappointed is that Microsoft did not do for uh Contact what they did for iCalendar, hmm. for the V cards. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, we can now in Outlook 2007 consume a multi-item calendar file, but you still can't do that with the vCard file. Hmm. It can only consume a single item.
0: Yeah, one contact. Hmm.
4: Right. So you can't do the same kind of, of contact sharing. And I know a lot of organizations would like to be able to do that. Contact sharing more at a departmental or work group level. Microsoft would say use SharePoint. Not everybody has SharePoint.
2: There right. always seems to be something missing, right? I mean, even in Google Apps for Domains, mailing lists are abysmal. You basically have to add one mail uh, you know, user at a time. There's no security, and you only get 1,000 per list.
4: Well, you guys know as well as anybody that if you have a development project, you have to cut the line on features somewhere, or you'll never finish it.
0: Yeah, you'll never ship.
4: And you have to prioritize. And that's, that seems to be the hardest because you always want some features that are, have enough bells and whistles to revive attention, uh, revive interest in your project, in your product. But you also need to kind of satisfy your existing customers and the pain points and suggestions that they've been making over the years. But
2: no security on a mailing list? Anybody can just send anything, spam, no problem. Come on. That this shouldn't even be allowed.
4: I can't imagine that, that, that there isn't some security. There's no security uh in there.
2: Absolutely none.
4: Because I know I can secure the uh uh Google Groups mailing list that I manage.
2: Yeah, this is the Apps for Domains mailing list feature. Uh there's just absolutely no settings at all. So you know, the, the, so basically what I'm saying is I've had to mix and match a little bit and, you know, move to a separate third-party mailing list server for that. But, you know, it's almost a blessing in disguise because I, I keep those things separate and uh, there's no intermingling or possibility of cross-contamination or anything like that.
4: Well, that need to mix and match really goes across the board, doesn't it? It sure uh, does. You have to do that with almost everything uh, that has to do with Technology, but particularly those areas that you work in the most. You get 80% of your features from one uh, place and then you need to find a couple of good widgets to help you with the rest. Do you know what my, you want to know what my favorite uh, Outlook developer widget is? What's that? Outlook Spy. What is that? Outlook Spy is a Tool written by another one of the Outlook MVPs, Dmitry Streblachenko, that allows you to look at the internals of Outlook. You you can see all the properties for an item or a folder from the Outlook object model, the Collaboration Data Objects object model, and from Extended Mathy.
0: This is Reflector for Outlook. Uh, Interesting.
4: Yeah, it's good.
0: That's, you know, I'm 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 looking at it right now, version 2.12. I'm looking at the screenshots saying this is reflector for Outlook. <laughs> I mean, just this whole idea of looking inward at these objects and breaking out what's there.
4: Well, and it will let you run script uh do some things like remove properties, add properties. Um, it's a it's a good tool for Uh, administrators who sometimes need to clean up weird things on people's mailboxes. Uh, though Microsoft has another, has a free tool, uh, mfcmappy.exe that does some of the same things. But Redemption, uh, Outlook Spy, this is the same author as the uh, Redemption Programming Library, uh, is really powerful. And especially with Outlook 2007's support for a property accessor object that lets you work with most of those hidden mappy properties on items and folders, it's pretty essential to have some kind of tool to be able to look and see what those properties are and what their names are.
0: So I'm looking at some fairly serious tools for development in Outlook. I'm still wondering what it is I want to build in Outlook.
2: Yeah, I I, I was just going to help bring bring us back to development. I mean, <laughs> it is a development show, <laughs> but but however, you know, this has been a very a good conversation to have, though. I mean, uh, it's been been very beneficial, and we just had to go there. But uh, let's talk about VBA versus Visual Studio tools for Office, Visto. And, you know, VBA is the older technology, the COM technology, and Visto is the .NET technology. Of course, everything uses COM when we're talking Outlook. But, you know, give us an overview of what two different problems these things solve or the two different approaches to the same problem, perhaps.
4: VBA, when you're talking about Outlook, is strictly a power user's tool and a developer prototyping tool. Um, I can figure something out a lot faster in VBA than I can firing up Visual Studio and uh, having to go through its slower compile process.
2: Now, why is that? If
4: I'm just, it's it's just how Visual Studio works. Um, you know, the end product is great, but if I'm just trying to figure out, well, how does this Outlook property work? That's a lot easier to do in VBA. But remember that VBA in Outlook uses a project file that's specific to the user. It's not portable in any way like VBA in Excel and Word are where the VBA code is in a document. So VBA in Outlook has never been a tool for building applications that you would want to share with somebody else. You've always needed to use some other programming environment. When we first got add-ins, that would have been VB5 or VB6. These days, it would be Visual Studio. Uh, I know people who program Outlook add-ins in Delphi. Uh, those are all good ways to do it.
0: Wow, they're still Delphi developers?
4: Back to that question, what do you want to, what do you want to build? There are two basic classes. There are ISVs who create Outlook add-ins to add the features that Microsoft left out.
0: So this is the Plaxos and the LinkedIns of the world?
4: The Plaxos and the LinkedIns and the Sperry software with 36 and counting uh, Outlook add-ins. That they just keep listening to what are people complaining about and using the same architecture to add functionality. How
2: about my machine's too slow? Maybe that's what they're complaining about because they got 30 (laughs) (laughs) add-ins.
4: That's another issue. Uh, The other – so that's the ISV world is adding functionality. That's things like uh, the uh, uh, getting things done add-in that that adds that kind of contact and – productivity management. The other type of Outlook application is more of a line of business application where you want to have visible in Outlook information or functionality specifically related to your organization's products or services. Uh, These are the applications that May, they may link not to Exchange, they may link to SharePoint, they may actually be linking to a SQL backend, but exposing that information in an Outlook interface in a way that you get the users' Outlook information, their contacts, appointments, etc., integrated with this backend information in a way that that to the user seems seamless. And this makes
0: total sense when you're talking about something like Microsoft CRM. Uh, uh, A week ago or so, we were talking to David Yak about CRM and how Outlook is deeply integrated into that. Exactly. Because that's always about a contact and a calendar and a message. I mean, those three ingredients are really the definition of CRM anyway, so why not have Outlook involved?
4: Exactly. And one of the things that's interesting to think about uh, is within Any given organization, or if you want to take it down to the departmental or work group level, um, some organizations are very email-centric, some are very contact-centric, some are very calendar-centric, or very task-centric. And in each of these cases, the Outlook interface and the connection to a back-end can be massaged through the magic of programming to pull those things together in a way that's appropriate for that particular uh, organization. In other words, it doesn't have to be one size fits all.
0: And this may be a bit of a digression, but tasks always seems to be the redheaded stepchild of Outlook. You know, mail, calendar, contacts, you know those are the big three. As a redheaded stepchild, I take offense to that remark. (laughs) (laughs) With blue eyes? <laughs> but Task just doesn't seem to have gotten the love that the other three features have gotten.
4: Well, Task didn't. You're absolutely right, uh, and in fact, that's why Microsoft gave so much attention to it in Outlook 2000. Tasks weren't really discoverable, uh, right. other than you you had a task button, but you didn't really know what to do with it. So one of the things that Outlook 2007 did to try to make the task more active in people's daily lives is to surface the to-do list as part of the main Outlook window. Right. That's a big, big change. And I think they will probably take it from there to see what about this way that tasks works can be improved in the future. Uh, and that will leave, of course, the journal as the next red-headed stepchild.
0: Oh, they, <laughs> but that's the one that ha- doesn't surface.
4: No, and a lot of people don't use it and never need to use it because right. they've got search. The whole idea of the journal is to keep track of things. Well, if you've got search, do you need something else to keep track of the same data? Yeah,
0: why do I need to make a separate record of uh, the, of things when I have search to find the original record? Right yeah i'm finding
2: that that indexed search changes everything it
0: really it does, changed the and way i work i think that's
4: I why we're going to see you know different ways of uh, these tasks and calendar and appointment items evolving uh, as microsoft understands how people are using them um, i you know right now we have and that interface with categories categories is becoming a little bit more like tagging on sites like YouTube and Flickr. It's not quite there yet, but you can imagine it going in that direction because that's a type of functionality people are getting really comfortable with.
0: And, yeah, categories is one of those things that, that where the folks who use it do great things with it, but if you don't get into using it properly, it just doesn't do anything useful for you.
4: No. No, and you can get kind of, you know, going in circles. I think that's, that's why they changed the interface in Outlook 2007 so that, uh, people are going to be less likely to create three categories that all mean the same thing. Right. You know, business contacts, business contact list, you know, you know in, you'll just have one category that would meet those requirements.
2: All right, I might want to shift gears here for a second and talk about Outlook web access, which anyone who has Exchange knows what this is. It's it's touted as the best web-based email client ever made. And I,
4: again, the airport test tells you Outlook web access is the, the best for corporate.
0: Use. Well, I'll tell you how good Outlook web access is. Outlook web access is why People are moving to Ajax. It is the original proof that Ajax was a viable thing. Okay.
2: You know, it's awesome. Awesome. Now, <laughs> if I don't have an exchange, can I get it?
4: It's an exchange feature. No.
2: Now, that sucks. Because That no, it makes perfect a, sense. You, need a, you it, It's a server-based technology. No, 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 no. This Outlook Web Access is a web server that could work against any SMTP POP3 mail client. Why isn't that a separate thing?
4: Because it's not designed. Because you would have to re-engineer it to nope. work with a POP S and No, nope.
2: the team. answer is back Because Microsoft's ace in the hole for selling Exchange.
0: I think there's less intent there than you're projecting. Maybe. Yes,
4: I think so too. All All right.
0: I don't think it's that separable. It needs definitely tied to the way Exchange works. I think it's possible for someone to. Take what they've done in OWA and make it into something that would interface with uh, an SMT POP3 uh, server. Yeah. But that's that's a whole other can of worms.
4: But it uses completely different technology, and if you did that, you would still have you know the web server is what would have to display what OWA looks like. Sure, I mean, there's no no reason someone you know couldn't and hasn't, and I suspect they have made. Uh, interfaces for web servers that look
2: for mail servers, yeah, that
4: looks fairly similar. And to there, are.
2: there are there are third party tools out there, but you yeah. know, OWA is um, touted as the the best web client ever.
4: So, but it, it's really made a difference in places like universities where they don't want to get into doing POP three support for twenty five thousand students.
0: Right. The, is you. Well, as soon as you get away, it's back to the whole "don't install on my client." You get
2: you solve that problem. I understand it, sure. I mean, I my, the mail server that I ran here, M. Damon had a had a. Uh, it was called World Client, but it's basically a web front end. You know, a web client for accessing the mail server, and that's think- what ninety nine percent of all of the people that had mail accounts on my server used. Because it was just so easy. It's ubiquitous. It's accessible anywhere. You've got the searchability. You've got the you know the calendar stuff. You've got everything right there.
4: Yeah, and Microsoft really inter- isn't interested in building pop SMTP servers. Yeah, you've got it in no
2: no no Windows but- Server,
4: but it's not. You've got it. This is really not about.
2: This is not about uh, a mail server.
4: for it. It's, it's just not, it's not. a big feature. But
2: Sue, this is not about a mail server. This is an ASP.NET app that is a front end to a mail server.
4: Right, but you have to have the mail server that's the that the front end, and see Outlook Web Access talks to Exchange using remote procedure calls.
2: Right. Okay, but SMTP, POP three, much simpler than than all of that. You know, much simpler protocols. Easy to do.
4: I'm sure you'll sell a million of them.
2: Yeah. Go for it, Carl. When,
4: when, when, you, when you build your,
2: Knock yourself out, buddy.
0: <laughs> go nuts. Last 10 minutes, guys. So we've managed it through our weaving through discussions around Outlook to get down to, uh, and I'm thinking in, in Alan Cooper terms here, Outlook is a sovereign app because it's always got some real estate on your screen. Companies have other sovereign apps they want their users to be using, and rather than build a whole other client for that, they're going to incorporate into Outlook. But to me, it only makes sense if they're at least using one of those three key elements of uh, contact, calendar, or message. So now, given that all those scenarios are true, is this a Visto, this is a Visto application? This is the way to do it. Get into .net and start yes. hooking up.
4: Yeah, this is a this is the way to do it and the way of the future uh is something called custom form regions. This is a a new feature in Outlook 2007. It's a little bit tricky to integrate in Visual Studio Tools for Office 2005, but when 2008 comes out very soon, uh, it gets a lot easier. And what these form regions do is allow the developer total control of what the user sees when they open a message, open an appointment, open a contact, whether it's a normal message or it's a uh, custom- customized message class. If you want to see how this works today, use the RSS feed feature in Outlook. I know it's not everybody's favorite feed reader, but as an example of what form regions do, it's a perfect example because that's how it's using the form region to display information about the feed. Uh, actually, the Exchange vo- 2007 voicemail does the same thing. It's using the form region feature.
0: So, based on the, that description of a form region, it's always in the context of an existing form.
4: It it but, it, but form becomes a more of an idea than uh, that's a, a a little bit more flexible than we've had in the past. Uh, in the past, you would have to use Outlook's kind of clunky form designer, uh, right? And write script code behind it and publish Ew. it somewhere. Well. The form region uh, in the Visual Studio 2008 time frame becomes a .NET surface that you can put controls on to link back to your, uh, that have been built in .NET, that link back to your SQL Server, uh, but have some relationship to this contact that you're displaying. So yeah, classic example
0: then would be something like list of orders. Exactly. So you pull up the regular contact form, and there's a region at the bottom of it or at the side of it that then has a list of information about his orders. Exactly. That's pretty cool. You've
4: got that. You've got it in a nutshell.
0: I nailed it. Hey, you nailed it.
4: And it's (laughs) it's something that people have wanted to be able to do easily. It's the kind of thing that's been able to do with difficulty up until now. but it's it's that's gonna continue to open up Outlook as a platform for integrating all kinds of information. One of Microsoft's favorite examples that they put out with Outlook two thousand seven is the travel agency application. So that oh, yeah. you've got your client and you've got uh in the context, but you've also got their flight schedules and that connects you over to your Sabre system uh all within the same window.
0: Hmm. Yeah, now you're talking. Now you're talking real productivity gains. Exactly. In terms of working the context of, of Outlook.
4: And there's also some interesting things behind uh the scenes that a lot of people don't know about that are not um they're not Visual Studio uh, tools for Office applic- application builders, that there are APIs to do things like data replication between a dedicated PST file that lives on the user's machine and any other external data source. So if you want to have a portable copy of a database, you can do that uh, on the backside. These are C++ or Delphi APIs.
3: There's one for
4: account management and notifications of account changes. There's one for getting notifications of the user's connection state, whether they're online or offline. Hmm. Um, Really some interesting things that you can do on the back end uh, if you need fairly high-end integration capabilities.
0: I I could actually see running like a, a SQL Express on the laptop. That's doing some replication to pull data down, that then is bound through VSTO to Outlook. Exactly. I don't know that I'd want to use a PST as a data store. It makes me nervous.
4: Well, the uh, the PST changes that were made in two thousand three, uh, the Outlook two thousand three timeframe, the PST file is very stable now. Still um, not
2: very fast.
4: They made a uh, a lot of changes so to accommodate. Uh, what was going to happen with cached exchange mode. Uh, so we've got the much larger capacity. It's more stable. Uh, it is faster. Uh, you still don't want enormous PST files, but it's much more functional than it used to be. And in fact, that's the basis of how Microsoft does their SharePoint integration. If you go cool. to a SharePoint website and you click on the button that says Add to Outlook, Uh, Outlook creates, if it doesn't have one already, a new PST file puts information in that PST file on where to get the SharePoint information, uh, where the SharePoint list is located, and sets up a replication schedule that every 20 minutes by default goes out to that SharePoint list and copies data down to the PST file or in Outlook 2007, does a two-way synchronization.
0: So what I find compelling about that is now I can work in different connection states. It's not just within the lo- the LAN when I'm in the office, but over the the broadband from home or over the EVDO connection in the airport. Mm-hmm. Because at SharePoint, it's all HTTP. It should be pretty painless to do that.
4: There's also It's also sneaky. Um, I know you know John Durant in the office oh, yes. group at Microsoft. Um, He, and there's another developer there, worked up a couple of great um, samples of how you could use any web service to make it look to Outlook like a SharePoint calendar or SharePoint Uh contact. In other words, if you expose data and make it look like SharePoint data, Outlook will can subscribe to it as it would a SharePoint calendar. So they've got some examples on you know they just took a random database of I think their video programs and uh, created a web service for it to make it look like SharePoint.
0: That's cool. Wow.
4: That's really that is really cool, and I think that shows you the kind of uh, change in the mindset from where we were five years ago, even with. Exchange being the only real platform uh, that was viable for doing integration with Outlook. And now, with this kind of replication of PST files or with web services, uh, with iCalendar and Web Calendar, Outlook is not just a universal inbox, but also can become a more flexible platform for all kinds of back-end connections. And, and HTTP connection.
2: Well, Sue, we're just about out of time here. Is there any last minute, uh, calls to action or, or shout outs or, or events that you want to plug or anything like that?
4: Well, anyone who's interested in exploring the possibilities of Outlook development can come to my website, OutlookCode.com. We have a lot of articles, latest resources. We have RSS feeds, so you can just subscribe and be happy with what's new comes out. We have uh, you know, several thousand code samples that people have contributed. Wow. We have very active discussion forums that cover everything from people who are writing their very first VB script code behind an Outlook <laughs> form to people who are trying to figure out how to deploy VSTO add-ins, uh, for multiple users on a machine.
2: That's great. Thank you, Sue. Sue Mosher has been our guest. Thank you. Thank
4: you, Richard and Carl. This has been great.
2: It's been great for us, too. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net for more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got transmitter
1: band by the